my name is Andrew Gamason, and it is my privilege to welcome you to the Culture Watch podcast, a podcast of Speaking for Him. On this podcast, we take you around the scene of news and current events from a Christian perspective. And it is my hope that through listening to this podcast, you will be encouraged and also be equipped to talk about current events with those who you come in contact with, seeing them through a Christian lens. Because although we are not of the world, we are in the world, and we need to be able to give the world the hope that is found only in Jesus Christ. So that is what I endeavored to do on this podcast. And of course, on Wednesdays, you can still hear the Speaking for Him podcast on this same podcast stream. So without further ado, let's get into the news for the week of August 14th. We start our news journey today in Maui, Hawaii. Search and rescue efforts in Hawaii growing more frantic as the death toll from the wildfires hits 96, with many still missing, and only 3% of the devastation has been searched so far. Fox & Friends Weekend co-host Will Kane is live in Maui, along with former Hawaii Congresswoman and Fox News contributor Tulsi Gabbard. Will, I know you got on a plane right after the show yesterday. You landed a few hours ago, and you're there with with the Congresswoman. Tell us what you're seeing. Yeah, Ainsley, one of the reasons that I got on that plane so quickly is I was sitting there after Fox and Friends and I got a text from this wonderful woman, Tulsi Gabbard, saying, hey, Will, you ought to get to Hawaii. And I said, you know what? You're right. She said she was on her way. I said, I'll be on my way as well. And here we are now, Tulsi, here in Kahului, Maui. You've been here for a day. You've made your way all the way over to West Maui. Um, Tell me what you've seen and why it was so important for you to come back to Maui. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I served in Congress for eight years. The island of Maui was was in my district. My heart has been with the people of Maui throughout this entire tragedy. Uh, I, I I needed to come here and be there for them and show my support, but also tell their story. There's so much happening here that's not actually making it out uh, into the news. Uh, the tragedy of every single life that's been lost, those who are still missing, we must continue to focus on, on uh, finding every one of those those people. There are also so many others who are are uh, struggling to survive and also looking for what happens tomorrow. And I just want to say that this community is so special. Even those who've lost their homes, who've lost everything, but maybe their car and their phone are stepping up to see how they can help their neighbor. And you and I have talked about that, Tulsi. Um, we have several acquaintances and friends, uh, famous surfer Kai Lenny and, and some um, just average citizens as well here on Maui who have all stepped up where they've seen gaps in the response. I'm talking about people flying helicopters and planes from here to the west side, boats. I know one of my friends is running his boat, the Gemini, from Maalea Harbor back to the west side. People are stepping up. It's, it's really incredible how during this time of need, the Aloha spirit really shines through. Uh, there are a lot of 
of community-led pods. They're calling them service pods north of Lahaina, a community that has been cut off largely from the outside world where media cameras are not being allowed in. Uh, those who don't specifically have a home there are not being allowed in. Uh, they're standing up and getting support, uh, you know, food, medicals, basic first aid, uh, toiletries, those sorts of things. But they're setting them up in people's yards and their garages, trying to figure out, okay, there's a concern, a serious concern about looting and, and security. They are trying to stand up their own security patrols, walking through the neighborhoods at night. There, there is a feeling though that, uh, that there, there's not enough communication. They're not, they're not getting word from the county or the state or the federal government or FEMA about what's going on, what's available to them. This is a completely community driven effort. They are helping each other. They are not unfortunately seeing that support coming from the government yet. This story hits harder for me today than it would have a year ago. And the reason is because I had the privilege of going to Oahu, Hawaii, to see my brother, who is a naval officer, and he is stationed at Pearl Harbor. On the way back from that trip, we had a layover in Maui. We were supposed to spend four hours there before going on to Denver, Colorado and finishing in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We ended up spending seven hours there and we actually talked to a lady who had moved from the mainland to Maui uh, because she had kids that were living in Hawaii and they urged her so she took them up on it and she enjoyed living there. And she talked about Lahaina, which is talked about in this clip that I just played for you. So I have a much more visual connection to this than I would have otherwise, because I can picture it. I remember flying into Maui and looking out the airport window at the beauty that surrounded me. Of course, beauty surrounded me during my whole trip to Hawaii but I can only imagine how devastating it must be for the people that live there to be going through what they are going through. Now, there's a couple reactions you might have to the events that were talked about in this story. And the first one is, of course, what is the U.S. government and FEMA doing about this emergency? And it doesn't sound like they had a good prepared response either on the state level in Hawaii or on the federal level with FEMA. But I think this points to something that I've talked about a lot on this podcast, which is that the U.S. government is big and bloated and not really able in a lot of cases to offer the specific aid that is needed in these situations. And so it is incumbent upon communities to step up and help. And I like what Tulsi Gabbard was able to report to us about how communities are doing that, how individuals are doing that, how people are stepping up to help one another to get from one side of the island or the other. At the time the story came out, 96 people had lost their lives, and I grieve for each of their families as they adjust to life without their loved one. It's probably even more people 
since that story aired. So we have much to pray about for the people of Maui. But I was also really encouraged by the community response. And I think it is incumbent upon us, especially as believers, to be the hands and feet of Jesus when disasters like this happen. I'm very grateful to be largely insulated from natural disaster here in the great state of Michigan. I know I often complain about the winters and they are hard on me, but compared to what people go through in other states, like being in Tornado Alley and having to lay in a bathtub with a mattress over your head because you don't have a basement, or going through tsunamis or tornadoes or hurricanes, we have it pretty good here in Michigan. We have the occasional severe winter storm, but usually that just means hunkering down and staying warm in our house. We have the occasional tornado come and other severe weather, but it usually doesn't amount to much in the grand scheme of things. So I feel very blessed by that. But I also know that there are people living in each of these areas where devastation hits and having such a personal conversation with someone who is familiar with the area surrounding us in Maui gives this an air of personal grief for me that it wouldn't have, as I said, a year ago. So please pray for the people of Maui and pray that they get the help that they need and also pray that Christians in that area are able to minister to them of the hope of Christ because Jesus is the only hope in times like this. And I know some people say, well, how do you believe in God when God allows things like this to happen? But the reality is, if you're an atheist and you don't believe that God is involved in these situations because there is no God, then you're even more devastated than I am because I'm relying on a God who allows these things to happen for a specific purpose and you are just grieving for these things happening with zero explanation to them. So I would urge you, if you are one who says that these events show that there is no God, I would urge you to rethink that. Because the reality is that God doesn't promise to take away the trials from us, but he does promise to walk through them. And I really hope that he does that for the people of Maui. Well, this next story comes out of Washington, D.C., and it has to do with the Washington Commanders NFL football team. There's a petition that has over 65,000 signatures to change the Washington commander's name back to the Washington Redskins. The petition was created by the Native American Guardians Association. Now, back in 2020, the team retired the Redskins' name after 87 years after many felt the name was offensive to Native Americans. Now, I feel like the NFL will never approve this, but I reached out to the group to find out why they want the old name back. Everybody that I talk to wants the name back thinks it's an honor and is upset and offended by not having the name Redskins. Redskins is a Redskin warrior. It's an adjective. They don't look at it as a slur. Just because somebody changed a definition and then argues what it isn't doesn't make it a slur. They don't believe it. They don't, they don't understand it. And quite frankly, they're fed up. 
Mm. Now, to be transparent, Tony Andrews isn't Native American, but this guy is Lance Wetzel, the son of Walter Wetzel, a Blackfeet tribe member who designed the Redskins logo. Back in 2020, he too felt the same way about the change. It's disheartening. Um, I think it, it takes away from the Native Americans. That logo represented who we are. That connection is is gone now. Now I asked Washington Commander fans to share their take with me, and some fans said, have every fan signed a petition as they enter the gates into FedEx week one, while fans like Reginald tweeted, let's stop the foolishness. I wish the Harris Group would put out a statement saying, this is not going to happen. But hold up. Ever since the new owners took over the Washington Commanders, they've used Washington's original name many times. The Redskins, the then Redskins. I gave up the Steelers for the then Redskins. To buy the Washington Redskins. Mm. But a commander spokesperson tells me the owners making a historical reference to watching and rooting for the Redskins does not signify a shift, nor does it change the reasons for dropping the name. But according to team president Jason Wright, the owners are listening. If it comes to discussing it, we'll discuss it. Why is that so important, though? I mean, because the fans are talking about it. You can't just turn a, a deaf ear to something that a segment of the fan base is passionate about. Mm. Well, let's see what the commanders do next, because the team confirms at 12.54 p.m. today, the group that created the petition delivered this 28-page letter to the new owners requesting the team to change the name back to the Redskins. So as with all of these name change politically correct stories, it has often appeared to me like certain segments of society have taken up offense for the group that should be offended, and then they get upset when the supposedly offended party isn't offended, and they basically expect them to fall into line. And I really feel like this happened with the Washington Redskins. The first thing I want to say is this. I did some research about the Washington Redskins name. And it is a little bit inconclusive, but I know that one of the things I read said that the reason they chose the name was because they had a lot of Native American representation on their team at one time. And so they chose that name to honor those stars of the team. But even if you were able to come up with another theory or story as to why it was named... I submit to you this, that you don't go out of your way to name your team something derogatory. The whole idea of having a sports team mascot is so that, like in my case in Michigan, I can say I'm a Lions fan, and I can get Lions merch, and I can say restore the roar, roar like a lion, because we want the Lions to go out on the field and represent and bring home the hardware. We've been waiting for a Lombardi trophy since the Super Bowl began. I don't know if this is the year, but I think the Lions are getting better, and I'm excited about that as a fan. So as an NFL fan, you root for your team. So putting up a team name to be deliberately derogatory makes no sense to me. You choose the Redskins because Redskins 
We're mighty warriors, and you want that projected onto your team. Now, the interesting thing about this story is that an organization made up of Native Americans, so American Indians, is petitioning for the name to be changed back to the Redskins. And you heard in that clip that these people in the ownership group have been referring to them as the Redskins within the building. And Ron Rivera, the coach, says that it has been in reverent tones. That it has not been in any way to offend them and has not been in any way to put them down. And again, I don't know why you would have a team name that was a put-down. So I think the mentality needs to shift. The Redskins were not named the Redskins to be offensive to Indians. Because if they were attempting to be offensive to Indians, it would be more likely this, that another team would call them the Redskins instead of their given name because they wanted to be offensive. And that does not appear to be the case. I also wanted to point out that I have a little bit of a Washington Post article that I want to read to you. And I saw a more extended interview from one of the guys that's featured in that story that I just played for you, where he said there have been polls since then. But in 2016, the Washington Post did a survey where they found that 9 in 10 Native Americans say they are not offended by the Washington Redskins name. And it says in this poll that few ordinary Indians have been persuaded by a national movement to change the football team's moniker. The survey of 504 people across every state and the district reveals that the minds of Native Americans have remained unchanged since a 2004 poll by the Armstrong Public Policy Center found the same result. Responses to the post questions about the issue were broadly consistent regardless of age, income, education, political party, or proximity to reservations. And again, this was in 2016. This was the Washington Post, which is known as a liberal publication. This is not a right-leaning publication at all. They're just reporting the facts that these Native Americans are in support of the name. I remember a few years ago when the Syracuse Orangemen changed their name to the Syracuse Orange. And I remember thinking how ridiculous it was that their mascot changed from a brave warrior to a piece of fruit to appease the woke mob. Look, I'm all for not going out of your way to offend people, but it feels like you've got a bunch of people in our culture today, who wake up each day and say, how can I be offended today? Because the other aspect of issues like this is nothing will ever please them. If it's not the Redskins moniker, it's the Indian on the Lando Lakes margarine. You know, they move from thing to thing. It it would be a slightly different if you could get to a place where, okay, they're happy now, you've appeased them. But we're talking about a culture of people that pull things out of whole cloth, 
that tell you to be offended when in reality there's nothing offensive going on. One other thing that comes to mind is the Florida State Seminoles of college sports. I always thought it was fascinating when I would watch the Seminoles and they would have a Seminole Indian come out to the 50-yard line and jab a flaming spear into the ground. Is there anything cooler than that? And to think of them getting a name change so that would not be a part of their storied tradition is just amazing to me. And back to the story at hand, is it not interesting to you that the designer of the Redskins logo was himself a Native American? I don't think this is about racism or being derogatory. This is about a name that you can have pride in. And for the fans of Washington, D.C., Native Americans and everyone else, that was for many, many years Redskins. And there's nothing wrong with that. I want to say a word kind of dovetailing on that about the Florida curriculum issue with black history because it was mentioned in the Florida black history curriculum that through the course of slavery, black people learned skills that benefited them later in life. And some people have taken issue with that and said that makes slavery not as bad. But I would submit to you this. I think good can come out of bad. And I think much of our history has good and bad things overlapping. And that's the stuff of life. And I have a question for you. Would you rather have the narrative that black people learned useful life skills while they were in the bondage of slavery, or would you rather have a narrative that says you still can't go to college on your own merit, so you need quotas to get you there? You see, we dumb down life for black people as a culture, And then we say that we're trying to help them. When in reality, we are holding them back because we want them to serve our purposes. The overall tenor of the government is, we will help you as long as you do what we want you to do. And as long as we can have control over you. I understand this as a disabled American. I have lived with socialism light most of my adult life as a disabled American. Disability is couched as something to help you get through life. And I'm not going to say it hasn't helped at all. But it has also hindered me in a variety of ways. It has caused me to walk away from jobs that I had because I couldn't accept advancement at the risk of losing my benefits through disability. 
It has caused me to not be as motivated to find outside work because I don't want to upset the benefits Apple cart. Barack Obama once said that the measure of a good government program is something that helps you out of it, that gets you away from dependence on it. But sadly, in most cases, that is not the truth. And I think in the case of this issue with the Redskins, I hope they go back to it. Because you've just seen an example of how people that are actually Indians have no problem with it and actually take great pride in the fact that their heritage is reflected in the name of this great NFL franchise. Because there's a storied Washington Redskins history. The Washington Redskins have multiple Super Bowl titles. The Washington Redskins saw the first black Super Bowl champion in Doug Williams. How about that? So we must have balance in all things, and we must stop this ridiculous pandering, because nothing will ever fully satisfy the woke mob. That is something that I have learned very quickly over the last few years. Okay, well, we're going to turn the corner and share with you something positive. There are a couple different human interest uh, reporters that I just absolutely love. If I could have one professional news job, it would be to be a human interest a reporter on the ilk of Steve Hartman or the gentleman that I have to share with you today, Eric Johnson. If you'll recall, a few months ago, I had my friend Ginny Burton on the podcast, and I was first introduced to her through an Eric Johnson news story. Well, this news story talks about the power of human kindness through a group of people that get together each morning, Monday through Friday, and simply wave. It's a summer morning in the city of Bothell. People are hustling to get to work. The sun is up, the roses are in bloom. On a nice street in a nice neighborhood, there is a nice sign. Tom Gaines walks out with a purpose and sets up a chair in his driveway. And then another. He lays out a box of bird seed for some friends. Then he sits down, takes coffee in hand. Well, I'm ready to do the 101st Street Wave, or whatever it's called. Before long, Jim Bunny comes ambling over from next door. Makes me feel great. Makes me feel like I belong here. Jim sits down, and for a time, they sit and admire life. Isn't this gorgeous? Look at the sun coming through the through the trees. Uh, it, it's, it's fantastic. I'm grateful. I'm grateful for another another beautiful day to be alive and have so many good friends. Birds show up for breakfast. Tom's wife, Chris, pulls up a chair. I think he's the happiest and most relaxed I've ever seen him since we moved here. And he started doing that. Everything is right. And once they're all together and set up, here's what they do. Are you ready? They just 
wave. They wave at cars, every single one. They wave at cyclists. Good morning. And people walking by. Good morning, Phil. They wave and they smile at everyone. Hey, happy Friday. You got that coffee. And that's it. How's your day going, Stuart? That's all it is. Hey, Sarah. How are you doing? Tom was a software guy. He retired in 2005. Chris was a teacher. She quit working four years before that. They moved to the neighborhood five years ago. And one morning, Tom was in the driveway and some kids were on their way to school. There were kids going by and, and some of them waved at me. And kind of, so I waved back, uh, and I, I believe they initiated it. It happened the next day, too, and he found that he looked forward to those simplest of gestures. He started waving. It became a ritual. More kids kept coming by, and we were waving at anybody and everybody, the police officers, bus drivers. Uh, we would wave at anybody and everybody walking by, and neighbors walking by, uh, walking their dog. Good morning. There's so much um, things wrong in the world that if we can add a little brightness to uh, our part of the world, that's that's important. How are you all? Hey, we're doing good. I hope you are. I get pleasure out of uh, seeing other people smile and being able to smile back at them. Tom and Chris have been doing it for five years now, this little daily celebration of the joys of life. Monday through Friday from 7 a.m. until 8 a.m., I'm out here greeting anybody that passes by. Jim moved in next door, and he couldn't resist. I thought, well, that's not a bad idea. So I grabbed a cup of coffee, and I started there two years ago, and I was there this morning. And people have responded. Hey, Dane, have a good day. Oh, I love it. It's one of the highlights of my morning every day. They wave, they honk. They give a thumbs up. They stop and chat. Charles Hughley lives down the street. Yeah, waves and talks to people. He's been doing that for years. You know, the world's been through a lot in the past few years, and people need to kind of snap out of that weird craziness, <laughs> you know. And seeing him wave at everybody and talk to the people that walk by, it's really nice. Good morning. When it rains, he puts up an umbrella. When it snows, he hooks up a heater. When he's down, it lifts him up. When we're down, it lifts us up. And that's all it is. Just some people reaching out to the world from their driveway. As if to say, don't forget to enjoy life. As if to say, we're all in this together and it's going to be okay. Here's what they do every morning. Are you ready? They just wave. I have to admit, I was going to try to cut that short and only play a part of it on the show. Uh, but that story hit me so much that I felt like there was no way I could cut it. But if you want to see it again or you want to share it with others by itself, that video link will be on the blog for this podcast episode. But I just really liked that story. It was very encouraging to me. I have always sought to share smiles with people wherever I go. They're free. They encourage people and they just make your day better when you can smile 
and share a smile with others. And I really feel like it's kind of the same attitude that these people have about waving to their neighbors. I remember when I lived in Wyoming, Michigan, right outside of Grand Rapids, we lived in the suburbs, so we had our yard and the sidewalk and then the little patch of grass between uh, the sidewalk and the road. And I would often go sit on that little patch of grass and wave at cars going by. I never made it a daily ritual, uh, but I definitely enjoyed doing that and waving at people and seeing who would wave back. And so I really resonated with this story because uh, if I had a suburban neighborhood, that is definitely something that I would do is something along those lines. And I really liked the part where it talked about the people that looked forward to it. The one guy said it was the highlight of his day. And it just shows how little things can encourage people. And again, that's something that we as believers should be about is encouraging one another. The Bible tells us to encourage one another and build each other up. And so I just really like that story. I hope that it helps you and encourages you today. And I hope that it kind of helps balance out some of the heaviness that we've discussed thus far in this episode. As I close today, I want to share with you another clip from Wesley Hunt. Wesley is a superstar in the making as far as Congress goes, and I really like his conviction and the way that he speaks so eloquently about the important issues that we are facing. I have shared a clip of his in the past, and this one is just another clip that I watched it, and it got to me. So I want to share this with you and I hope that it will encourage you to stand up for what is right. We are in a time when the world says right is wrong and wrong is right and we need to shine brighter for the truth of the Lord Jesus. My daughters are going to watch this. Because you have become their new hero. And I can assure you that my four-year-old and my two-year-old daughters will not change in front of biological men. This is ridiculous. I don't care what party you are a part of. If you think that we are all equal and the same biologically, you've literally lost your mind. And when my two daughters work hard in the sport, work hard in their craft to be the best that they can be amongst other women, they will compete against other women. I owe Victoria and Olivia and every other young lady in this country that. If you think I'm wrong, I am not the problem. I can assure you. We have an opportunity in this country to get this right in 2024 so we can stop all of this foolishness. But I cannot thank you ladies enough for bringing this up. I apologize that we live in America where this is happening. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, brave ladies, for being here today. I greatly appreciate it, and I admire your bravery in these times. Many of my colleagues on the left like to discuss gender-affirming care and claim that puberty blockers and hormone therapy and sex reassignment surgery are the only ways to treat gender dysphoria. 
Once a child expresses a feeling of gender dysphoria, instead of questioning the root cause of that feeling, that child will more likely than not be on a fast track to gender reassignment surgery, or otherwise known as genital mutilation. But I want you to imagine something. What would happen if we affirmed every thought that our children have? I'd like to show you a food pyramid. Now I know what you're thinking. This is not the FDA's approved food pyramid, although many of you probably wish it was. This is the food pyramid according to my four-year-old and my two-year-old daughters. And by the way, in the Hunt House, we don't do Ben and Jerry's. It's Bluebell only. <laughs> if my children had their way, they would have ice cream for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and for every single meal in between. Oh, the wisdom of children. But in a sane country, we know that children are mature enough to make adult decisions that will impact the rest of their lives. That's why we have parents. Children cry for ice cream, but as parents, we have the wisdom to know that ice cream is not in their best interest, particularly their long-term interest. I want to thank my parents, Willie and Diane Hunt. They had three children. All three of us went to West Point. All three of us served our country. All three of us earned multiple master's degrees from Ivy League schools. Do you know why? Because my parents did not give in to the thoughts of an adolescent, Wesley Hunt. I am a United States congressman because my parents didn't listen to me when I was eight years old. They raised us. They cared for us. They taught us the ways of being successful people. I just really like Wesley Hunt, and I hope that he stays involved in the political process. Who knows? We may even see him make a run at the White House sometime in the future. But I want to key in on one thing that he said. I am a United States Congress today because my parents did not listen to an eight-year-old Wesley Hunt. Good parents, godly parents, realize that eight-year-olds do not have the capacity to make life-changing decisions for themselves. That is why they have been given parents, to guide and guard them and raise them to adulthood where they will then be equipped to making such decisions. And it's been pointed out numerous times. I'm far from the first person to point it out. So I'll put that out there in, in the beginning of this observation. But is it not crazy when you see people saying you shouldn't charge this 11-year-old murderer as an adult because they don't have the capacity to know the full extent of what they did, but then also turn around and say that that same 11-year-old can tell me that he was born in the wrong body and that he's actually a girl, and that I, on his behalf, can authorize a genital mutilation, a sex change surgery, based on what he, as an 11-year-old, is feeling that day. That is just a ridiculous thought, to think that both of those things can be true. So, my hope 
is that you as parents will realize the great responsibility that you have to bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Your children are counting on you to do that. A child is far more likely to follow Christ if their father is following Christ. And so I leave you with the challenge to train up your children in the way they should go. And when they are old, they will not depart from it. Well, that's all I have to share with you today. As I said, I hope that you will share this episode with family and friends if you found it beneficial. I hope that you will have a wonderful week and keep serving the best of masters. Thank you for listening to the Culture Watch Podcast. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking for Him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at speakingforhim. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review.